0: You're listening to the Solution Focused Podcast, the official podcast of the UK Association for Solution Focused Practice. And I'm your host, Alan Parry. In this episode of the Solution Focused Podcast, my guest is Steve Flatt. Now, Steve is based at the Psychological Therapies Unit in Liverpool, and he's been a specialist in working with trauma for the better part of three decades. He also runs a national trauma network and is a solution-focused practitioner. We had a fascinating conversation about working with trauma, so a big, big welcome to Steve Flatt. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show. Hi. How you doing? I'm good, yeah. Um, so we're going to be talking about trauma today. So to kick off, would you just give us a little bit of background on yourself and, and your own experience at working with trauma? Okay.
1: Um, my own experience of working with trauma or my own experience of trauma?
0: Oh, which, whichever you want to go with, Steve.
1: Okay. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see where it falls out. Um, I used to work in the motor racing industry um, and that there's quite a lot of trauma in that one way and another. Um, not only deliberate, but um, when we make mistakes and fall off the track and things like that. and And I've had a number of injuries in that area. Um, uh, and I've had quite a lot of physical injury in my time of one sort and another, uh, including serious assault and things like that. Um so i'm I'm not unfamiliar with with receive or being on the receiving end of a trauma. let's put it that way. Um, my own experience, my my professional experience, um, relates much more to beginning in the, it, as a psychotherapist in about 1994, um, so that's what 24 years ago now, um, and I've pretty been pretty much working in this field ever since. Um, and when I first started working as a trauma therapist, it, it was it was very much in the medical model. It was very much history assessment, um, and then the kind of classic forms of intervention. Um, which is about CBT really. Um, But during the course of my career, and particularly since about 2008, um, I became less and less satisfied with that kind of intervention, even though I was still getting results, because it seemed very long, complex, and really not... There was so much time wasted with taking histories and things like that. Um, And I, I wrote a paper in 1998 from a GP practice that I was working in at the time um, when where I, I'd reflected on this paper many years later and one of the things that I noticed was um, that I was using various phrases from solution focused practice like um, you know if if things were a bit better what would be different and so on and so forth and at that time I hadn't heard of solution focused practice at all um, and I can only assume that those kind of statements came from my engineering days because i've subsequently reflected on that and realized that actually engineers are almost inevitably solution focused um so that kind of almost set a scene for me but come 2008 uh, i met uh, susie curtis um and she was then currently doing her doctorate at um, lancaster university and effectively i became her supervisor informal rather than formal Um, but she was really taken by solution-focused practice and we spent a lot of time discussing that Um, and I became more and more enamored of it and over the time since then in the last 10 years basically I've dropped from my trauma practice practically everything of the traditional what would be seen as the traditional process Um, and I've Adopted even even more so I, for a long time. I hung on to some things that I I really liked about explanations and psychoeducation and things like that, and and even those have become much more abbreviated, um, and much simpler, and much more akin to an, uh, to metaphors or analogies, rather than a, a lengthy explanation of of what's going on inside a person, uh, according to the to the neuroscience, and. I found that that again has speeded the process up. And the more I've dumped uh, of the traditional process, the faster my, um, my clients have, have made progress. And, and I'm quite sure that's because what I've done is cut out everything apart from the questions that they find helpful. Uh, though sometimes I ask questions that are probably not very helpful <laughs> and still not that good at it. Um, but I'm improving and I hope to go on improving until the day I stop doing it. Um, so it's it's really an evolving process for me even now, and and I continually read um, work from other people like Adam Frohr and and Ben Furman and others, uh, and I find that what I'm doing is getting closer and closer to the kind of things that they've written about and the kind of the things that they talk about, um, and and one of the things that that is crucial to me is is about actually getting people to notice how they've managed to cope with, how they've managed to survive, even sometimes how they've managed to thrive as a product of the trauma that they've experienced and, and looking at the ways that they manage that um, and, and the way that they begin to think about things for themselves. And, and again, I use lots of analogies like horse races and things like that um, to, to try to, to illustrate to people their own, their own success, their own abilities, their own strengths. Um, rather than depending on anything that I I might say or, or do or provide even in terms of information and in, in education these days.
0: That's an interesting journey then, isn't it, to go from the kind of quite a traditional model towards this solution-focused one. You talk about, you know, the time wasted taking histories and just asking the questions that you feel are, are helpful to the client.
1: Absolutely. I mean, to give you an example, when I first started doing this work, um, the nice guidelines suggest somewhere between 14 and 18 sessions and, and i was probably doing 12 to 14 sessions and feeling quite chuffed with that uh, my average seeing time now is four
0: to six sessions and that's and that's specifically with your with clients who are presenting with trauma issues for four yeah, to six yeah absolutely wow. yeah yeah so um, what that,
1: do that's we... I, yeah. It, that that that's for a particular group that's for single incident trauma okay uh, you know traffic accidents personal injury things of that nature um battlefield victims that because de- uh, they've often got very serious and multiple traumas that can take quite a lot longer and sometimes it's never a resolution but a, a kind of a maintenance progress uh, project but they, they often make huge process progress in the early stages um, and, and are able to do much more, but still struggle with um, things like intrusive memories and sometimes flashbacks. But again, they recognise that they can control them, um, and and that takes a lot of the fear out and significantly reduces them, even if they don't go away altogether.
0: So you've spoken there about different kinds of trauma. What What is it that we actually mean by trauma?
1: Um, well, I suppose uh, there, there are lots of definitions. I mean, I, I can tell you the... Um, um, DSM 5 one, if I can find it fairly quickly. Broad, yeah, okay. Um, there, are, Well, basically, there are three um, aspects to trauma. Uh, the first is an event or multiple events where there is actual threat of bodily or psychological harm or neglect for a child that de- jeopardizes healthy development. That was a SAMHSA S-S-A-M-H-S-A definition, that's an American organization in 2014 and that's the event itself um so so trauma is a, is a very wide based or, or definition of trauma is a very wide based one that can include anything that's kind of out of the normal experience um that uh, actually indicates actual threat of bodily or psychological harm so or, or, ha- or harm to others on, the, on on occasion
0: so what is distinctive then about somebody who who presents with trauma as opposed to other clients that you may see? Um, it, the, the distinction for
1: me is that, generally speaking, their their presentation is directly related to a single event or, or events uh, rather than being a generalised kind of presentation. It, it's, it's subtle. It, the thing is that you're working with us is. The, the diagnosis of of PTSD, if you like, or adjustment disorder, is generally very specific because it's the, it's the one of the few or the two of the few diagnoses that actually indicate there's a specific event in the environment that has produced this, and and it's one of the few diagnoses that I, I actually will sign up to almost, and um, un- unlike virtually all other psychiatric diagnoses, which most SF practitioners will avoid anyway um, because they're, they're just so medically orientated. Um, but it, it, the, the distinction is often one of this being this very specific event rather than, and, and you've got something very concrete to work with rather than being a generalized approach to life um, in somebody who's depressed or anxious. Again, labels i'm not terribly keen on um who who are presenting in a much more general way it's a lot easier to work with in some respects and and depending on the nature of the trauma for people who've experienced um ongoing and long chronic traumatic situations such as people who've been um, trafficked or um, been in war zones and things like that it's it's quite different um, but for single incident, it, it's very often very clear. And, and there is a particular response of avoidance to those aspects of their life where the trauma occurred or the nature of the trauma and car accidents are classic. Most people are very reluctant to get back into cars after they've had some kind of a trauma in a car. And it's perfectly logical.
0: So you mentioned things like flashbacks and stuff like that. And I wanted to I wanted to talk about these kind of um well, I've I've call, I'm calling it a trauma attack. It's probably not the right phrase, but that that sense where the where the body kind of gets hijacked in a way by this by this sense of threat. Whether you explain this in terms of the the exact biology of it, or whether you do it in terms of metaphor, what exactly is happening to someone when they go into that kind of you know almost a hijacked state where their threat response kicks in?
1: Well, it depends. If 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 they're in a situation where there are some triggers from the environment that produce a, a bodily response, then basically the body is responding in, in an aroused sense that says, this is a place that potentially represents danger. Uh, I need to do something about it. And basically the body has two choices. And people talk about freeze, freeze. Um, Some people freeze, but more often than not, people will automatically try to avoid or if they can't avoid it, they become angry um, because anger is a great way of pushing uh, other people or situations away. You become threatening um, rather than being threatened. Mm. Um, And the body's body's response is just a physical arousal to prepare you for running or fighting. Um, It's not. Uh, and the thing, the other thing is that the medical profession choose to to call the the arousal symptoms such as um, nausea, such as um, empty stomach, such as diarrhea, such as um, uh, urination, involuntary urination, incontinence, uh, yeah. doubling incontinence, um, vomiting, um, sweating. Um, they choose to call these things symptoms they 're not they're the body's natural response they're all part of this defense mechanism. They all have a function um, in order to help try and preserve life they are, they are not side effects they are not symptoms they are central to a person's um, survival mode
0: yeah so these are these are things that these are things that we do when we 're under real threat because yeah. they 're useful to us.
1: Well, they certainly were useful 10,000, 12,000 years ago. I mean, yeah. arguably, arguably anything over about 120 years ago. But um, our bodies haven't changed. Our environment has changed enormously. Um, and we're much less likely to experience trauma than we were, well, even, well certainly before the Second World War. Because um, that, that, to me, is kind of the turning point in, in psychiatric in, in psychological terms, it's, it's a, uh, a turning point for me um, in terms of how the world changed and how the world became far more intellectual and less f- far less physical. Um, but we haven't caught up with that because our thinking and our bodies are still very much in the idea that if we experience a threat, then we need to either run away from it or kick the hell out of it.
0: So how, how, how do you help people with that? So if somebody is in a situation where they keep on being hijacked by this response, but now they're in a situation where it's, it's not appropriate anymore because they're not actually surrounded by th- that, that trigger is like a false trigger and yet their body is going into this overdrive. How, do you, how would you go about helping someone to overcome that?
1: Well, the, the first thing I do is, is, is very SF and ask them how they coped with it themselves in the first place and the kind okay. of things that they did. Uh, in order to help them manage it and and then we we focus down upon those those things that were really helpful um and and then the other thing that we do i I try to do with them is is to get them to think about what else might be more helpful in that situation and see if they can come up with their own answers um that's the first thing draw on their own experiences of their own events right Um, that's really, really important because if they begin to realize that they do have control in these situations, then they will often grow and develop and, and produce new ways of managing it for themselves. Um, if if I find that somebody is saying that they're just repeating the same behavior over and over and over again, then, then I will offer some education. And and Susie and I wrote a paper some years ago now uh, about the um, about what was called knowing and not knowing. Um, and, and if somebody doesn't have any information that, that would help them or any ideas about what would help them in these kind of situations, then it, we felt it was appropriate to step in with some education that might help them um, to maintain a higher level of control because their understanding of their own situation changes. And then they begin to rebuild, if you like, their own responses to it based on the new knowledge
0: yeah that's an interesting point actually because a lot of solution focused is all about um trying to mine the resources and strategies that people already have but sometimes maybe in a case like this they they might not have any strategies that are working and so in that case you would then offer some education to those people
1: absolutely and and that to me is a pragmatic response and i mean it's you only need to go back to Steve DeShay's as if it ain't working, do something else. Yeah. Um, to, to kind of get a rationale for that approach. And and if something isn't working, then I will
0: do something else. Well, insu Kimberg said something similar as well when she was asked, would you tell the client something that was helpful? And she said, well, why on earth wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's it's interesting. And you start off always by asking how they're coping with that already. And then you'll ask them what else might be helpful. So you're inviting them to, to conjure... To conjure things which might be more helpful even than that, and then if they're not present, then you will offer the psychoeducation.
1: Yeah, it's it's just to be honest with you, I, I hesitate to call it psychoeducation because my my main intervention now is is a very simple metaphor using a, a horse and a rider, um, and the because most people feel that they're out of control of their bodies. Okay. Uh, And I use the horse as the idea of their body and the rider as they themselves, and then illustrate the links between that uh, and their imagination and, and how their imagination can sometimes drive the horse to want to run or fight. Um, It it works quite well. I certainly, I can't, it's vanishingly small number of people who haven't got it because it is, it is very simple.
0: Could you talk us through that metaphor then of the horse and the rider? Yeah. Okay. Um,
1: First of all, I ask everybody: Have you ever ridden a horse? Right. Uh, and most people will say yes. Some people will say no. Um, and I say, okay. So what was it like the first time you got on a horse? And most people will say, oh, it was a bit scary. Um, particularly because most of the time they're put on as kids, yeah. um, and and they're a long way up and all the rest of it. <laughs> and uh, and they sort of say, you know, I'll, I'll say, to, I'll ask them, you know, what what was it like? And they say oh, it was a bit scary. Sometimes they say I didn't really feel in control and so on and so forth. Um, so I say, okay, so I want to tell you a few things that I know about a horse. Um, and then I, I do all this on a whiteboard, by the way. So I actually yeah. draw a horse up and then write everything up. Um, and I say, well, horses are emotional. Um, they, they they react very quickly. They're very powerful physically. They're very strong. Um, they, they, they're very threat-minded. Um, horses are ruminants and they're prey to m- most predators. Um so consequently they're they're very skittish around their environments, they're always looking out for trouble. Um and consequently they spook very easily. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I say about horses is that they always live in the here and now. You know, you don't see horses with mortgages or insurance policies. <laughs> um, you know, if they're hungry they go and eat, if they're tired, they have a kip, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um and they have two basic emotions, which isn't entirely true, but works for them works for the metaphor. Uh, and those two emotions are fear and anger. Um, fear t- causes them to run away and anger causes them to kick out if they can't escape. Uh, and basically I say the horse, The horse. well, the next thing I say is that the reason I put a horse up there is because human beings are the weirdest creatures on the planet, bar nothing. There, there is nothing weirder than a human being. Um, and the reason for that is that human beings are really like two creatures rolled into one. Um, and again, the analogy for this comes from a psychologist in the States called Jonathan Haidt, um, who used an elephant. And I'm afraid the elephant didn't work for me. Hence the change to a horse, because <laughs> um, elephants just strike me as being far too powerful and yeah. overwhelming. And, and a be- horse
0: is much more skittish, isn't it? People can see that in a horse.
1: Exactly. Um, so, um, th- so the first, the first organism in, inside the person, or the first representation, is the horse. Uh, and I generally try and make a crap joke by saying there isn't some kind of quadruped running around inside you. Um, and then the second part of the of a human being is the rider. And this is the intellect.
0: I see. Uh, so the horse represents the kind of emotional brain, does it? And then the yeah, uh, yeah.
1: everything that da- everything downwards from the emotional brain, everything from the limbic system down to your feet. Yeah. More or less. Uh, and the the rider represents really the
0: prefrontal cortex. Okay, the rational bit, the stuff that yeah, thinks, the, yeah. Yeah, the bit that does the
1: thinking. Um, and and the rider is rational, logical, pragmatic, um, but it's also self-aware. Um, and consequently, it, it knows it's alive, it knows it exists, uh, therefore it also knows it can die. And and the other significant change um, in terms of every other creature on the planet is that hu- that human beings, the rider... It also has a a source of amazing creativity called the imagination and when we're in a good place and when we're working together well the horse and the rider work together really really well Um, one other thing about the horse is the horse doesn't care about our careers our ambitions our social lives our relationships all it wants to do is to keep you alive Uh, and stephen pinker back in 2004 coined the phrase uh, survival mechanism, uh, and that's it. Does exactly what it says on the tin. It just yeah. wants to keep you alive. Um, so you've got a horse with a rider sat on its back, and when we're in a good place, they're working well together. You don't notice the join, and they could go out and win the Grand National. When we have a trauma, the balance changes, uh, and again, a lot of people in uh, who work a lot in trauma or with people who suffered trauma, um, they recognise this kind of in inverted commas survival mode that people go into Uh, and this is when the horse seems to take some kind of lead in the in the the management of the person's life Uh, and to give you a very clear example of how the horse works um, I had a person in yesterday who um, we were talking about them doing something a little bit extra and, and they were saying well I really love going out and I get really excited when I start thinking about going out But as it gets closer to the time to go out, I get more and more anxious, and eventually I find an excuse not to go. Um, And the rider is all sort of excited about the social activity, but then the horse um, gets extremely skittish and doesn't want to go out. Mm. And actually the person then rationalizes their behavior by saying, well, actually I wouldn't enjoy it anyway. Um, So you find that often there's this kind of physical response to the imagination of, going out of meeting people um of of doing things outside of this small safe world that they're now existing in which is often pretty much just within the home um anything outside of that um, almost becomes there be dragons uh, and the the horse responds to that Um, but the other thing that people tend to do is because we're threat-minded creatures anyway um if they imagine oh i've got to go to to the shops in the car or something like that immediately they begin to imagine what could could go wrong because again the survival mechanism is very negative Um, it it sees threat it doesn't see the good stuff in life because if you miss seeing a
0: threat you're in trouble so in a sense then the rider is using its skill of imagination to further freak out the horse absolutely you've got it in one yeah
1: Yeah, and and the more you think about the negative things, the more freaked out the horse becomes. Uh, And ironically, traditional therapy tends to focus on the bit that freaks out the horse. (laughs) You know, whether it's going over and over and over the event time and time and time again until you become desensitized to it, um, which doesn't always happen, or um, you put the person in the place of the threat or some other activity you you try to challenge the negative thoughts and you say they're irrational well actually for most people these thoughts are incredibly rational um, and it's also incredibly disrespectful to do something like that so when you begin to explain this in, in a gentle way if they can't if they haven't been able to grasp the fact that they're actually doing things that are positive for themselves then the, immediately they begin to recognize and you can almost I've, I've seen so many times people lift in the seat as they get the metaphor and they begin to realize that actually what they're doing is they're stoking up their own horse with the things that they're thinking about. And and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm doing it with my own imagination. Yeah. And and then they recognize the connection with, well, what were the things that you were doing well that made you feel better? Because then they realize that the thing, when they were thinking about things that worked, they weren't thinking about things that didn't
0: work. So they didn't get anxious. That's a good point, isn't it? Because one of the things which is very different about solution-focused therapy is it it does invite the client to start using their imagination to imagine what things will look like when their hopes are realised. In other words, when things are going well, exactly. Um, and, and describing that in real detail. So I suppose what you're feeding there is you're feeding the imagination some good stuff. And so I'm guessing just that process of doing that is soothing the horse. Is it?
1: Absolutely, because the horse the horse doesn't react to the good stuff. It has no interest in the good stuff. So it doesn't necessarily actively so- soothe it, though it may do. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, can't, I have no idea what's going on inside a person. Um, but well, what's not tends- freaking it out anyway. It's not freaking it out. And most yeah. people tell me that. You know, so that's a piece of information that I get. Um, whether it soothes it or not, I don't know. Um, but the point is that they begin to think more and more about what it is they want. And the more they do that, um, the more confident they become because they begin to think about the things that they can do. And they then start building on their own skills and qualities and abilities without any further effort from me because they notice the things that work.
0: What does a person do if they're on a horse and it turns into a bucking bronco? You, you grip onto it. If, if you're not a very good
1: rider and it goes a bit mad, most people immediately try to grip onto a horse. Uh, and the first thing that the horse does then is assume that you want to go faster right so there's this wonderful british or at least western expression i think i i actually think it's almost english rather than anything else and um, that says oh you need to get a grip of yourself well ironically that's the worst bloody thing you can do
0: so what would that look like to get a grip and what would it look like to let go
1: well if you, when when you get a grip it's it's kind of i need to control the horse more um and i i need to I need to manage these symptoms, So that, uh, symptoms in inverted commas, yeah. so that, so that you, you, you get control of the symptoms. And of course, the, what that does is immediately focus you more on the symptoms. And of course, the symptoms represent something that's unpleasant, something that you don't like. And so you're actually focusing your horse on something that it doesn't want on this, on this occasion, its own unpleasant um, bodily sensations.
0: And what does letting go look like? So, so the thing that would be more helpful for the horse, what would what would one do on the booking bronco?
1: Well, the, fir- the first thing that a rider has lost control of a horse is actually to, to, to not grip onto the sides of the horse with your legs. You tend to relax the reins uh, unless, you know, you know, unless you're a really competent rider um, and basically just slump back in the saddle um, so that the horse knows that actually the rider's not in a tense state, because the, the if you the more tense you become as the rider, the more the horse senses that, and the more it's likely to run off. So, so kind of relaxing in the saddle, and it's completely counterintuitive. Um, and that's the one of the, again the crucial things about SF is that it's 21st century thinking, not 20th century thinking. Um, because it is counterintuitive and it is sitting back in the saddle. It is relaxing, it is looking around and, and noticing what's actually going on uh, outside of your head instead of working on all these sensations that are coming up from your body that are telling you that something really mad is going on.
0: So to translate that metaphor of of letting go and leaning back in the saddle into into the practical real world... If if the client wants to, if the client hears this and thinks, yeah, that's a good idea. Next time, next time I go into a booking bronco, I'm going to relax into the saddle. What does what does that look like in in the translated world? Back again.
1: Well, first thing is is to is to to stand is to not react, Um, unless of course you're about to be mugged by a hyena or run over by a boss. Yeah. Um, But the bottom line is actually to just stand not try, try very hard not to tense your muscles in preparation for flight and flight. And the biggest thing you can do is take a deep breath and really slow your breathing down. Because one of the physiological responses when somebody is in a panic is to pant, is to breathe fast and shallow. Yeah. And if you, if you can take control of your breathing at that moment and really slow your breathing down, um, you, you send a very powerful physical neurological response to the sections of the brain that, that are trying to make you run faster or run away or get angry or whatever else to say actually we're not going to supply you with all the necessary oxygen for this particular task you don't need to do it uh, and actually what tends to happen is because it hasn't got control because it's breathing is the only system in the human body that both the horse and the rider control and if you as a rider take control of that particular mechanism then the horse cannot complete its uh, it's wild right off into the sunset away from the threat
0: right brilliant
1: so it doesn't have the oxygen um to to be able to power the muscles and everything else because you're holding back that particular system
0: so this metaphor aside then where you know you you might depending on the client share this metaphor with them is the rest of your work pretty much purely solution focused or do you mix in other other approaches as well
1: no, it, it's, it's got simpler and simpler. I mean, after, it, after the first couple of sessions, I mean, the first session tends to be a, an absolutely classic first session of um, you know, the contract question, the miracle question, scaling, and what would be your next small step. Uh, if, if there's sometimes, sometimes, it depends on the person, sometimes the metaphor of the, the horse and the rider gets in that first session, um, depending on where they are. Uh, and again, that depends large it's so variable that you know I, you don't know what's going to walk through the door and and I try very hard not to make assumptions about what's necessary. Um, so it might be that we do that, and then subsequent sessions are almost always about well, what's been better or what's been different since we last met you know what what have you done that's worked better for you and then then we tend to work on that and again if there's if there's some psychoeducation um that, that's useful uh, it might be the horse and the rider um i, I have i have a, a session that i'm using less and less now which is about the processes of memory and how memory impact um through tra- how, how memory is affected through the impact of trauma um and how that then actually diverts our attention um but I'm using that less and less because more and more people are coming in and saying well I noticed this and I noticed that and I'm doing this now and I made this difference and 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 I went here and and then we explore all of those things and and the rest of it tends to become much more redundant
0: okay so if if your practice of working with trauma then is is aside from that that metaphor is 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 as you're describing it kind of relatively pure solution focused isn't it does that mean that anyone who's got a lot of experience with solution focus but maybe hasn't particularly worked with trauma would be able to step into that field and, and still be effective for the client
1: well i, I personally i think so i mean i, I do run uh, a national trauma network okay um, and uh, we're increasingly using solution focus practitioners um, because we're getting more and more requests for it uh, simply because traditional interventions aren't working um, and I'm asking people to work and I, I will offer them uh, supervision as part of the package of, of the work that they do. Uh, and I'm finding increasingly that they're being incredibly effective um, simply because um, they are being solution focused. And, and very often they realize that they have got the skills and qualities that that is necessary to do it, um, provided that they they are being solution focused and really listening to the
0: client. Do you ever ask any of the questions, slightly different, um, to take into account that this is someone who has who has had some sort of traumatic incident? Do, does the miracle question change, or any of the other questions change at all? Um, yes, uh, the thing is that they change. They pretty
1: much change anyway, according to who you know, regardless of who it is I'm working with. Yeah, um, because I'm, I'm making assessments of of how I think that. That question would work best for that particular person, their language, their um, the way they're talking. That you know, there are all sorts of factors, so it, it's very it is very dependent upon the person I'm working with.
0: And what what your favourite kind of um, I hesitate to use, to use the word cures because um, I just can't think of another word. But you know, the favourite kind of answers or solutions, I suppose, is a better word that clients have come up with. And you you just know that you'd have never come up with that if if you weren't harnessing their resources?
1: Um that's a tricky question. Um I I haven't got it. I don't think I have favourite
0: answers, to be honest. I rarely remember. What are typical kind of responses from people in trauma then that, that kind of help them? You know, if you were to make a compendium of all the all the things that your clients have taught you, what kind of things would would be in there, do you think?
1: Oh, um, <laughs> I, went out, I went out and did it. Um, uh, I got in the car and uh, or I mean, s- soldiers are particularly good. Um, very often they'll, they'll come in, they're extremely paranoid. Um, they're, they're frightened of the, um, the situation around them because they've suddenly moved from what was a very regulated environment into what seems a, a chaotic environment. Um, a very chaotic environment sometimes and um, basically what what they'll come back is they'll say uh, well I went to the supermarket I went to the corner shop um, and all the observation skills I had instead of using them to notice threat they'll notice you know how people are just getting on with each other and how normal the situation is Um, so you you get a shift of perception oh wow um, and and you just know that when they come back with something like that Um, people, it's the same with motor cars, you know, they get into the motor car and, and and instead of watching the traffic all the time, they'll, they'll be looking out the side window and not if they're driving, obviously, but if they're a passenger or something like that, um, and they'll actually be looking at other things rather than the traffic.
0: So they start to recruit these things that have been, have been a source of difficulty into something, which is a source of positivity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They they turn it, turn it around in their own heads. Yeah. And, and you know, the, it's surprising the different things that they come back with. You know, you'd, I, I never know what it is. You can't, you know, sometimes you think that, that, um, uh, I, I, I can give you a good example of a, a chap that was hit in the high speed in the rear at the end of a motorway, um, in a van. Um, and he was shunted almost into the path of an articulated truck. Wow. Um, and, um, one of the. Uh, the, the, the the guy in the car that had hit him was basically racing somebody else. Uh, and they came around a bend at far too great a speed. Um, but he he shattered his knee. Um, uh, and the first thing he noticed, it was in a hire van. Um, uh, and this voice was coming out of the dashboard um, that's saying, you appear to have had some kind of a, an accident. Um, you know, do you need assistance? Um, because it was, you know, one of these radio connected, rental vehicles yeah um and when we he he told me about that and he kind of he stitched straight over it and when we first talked about the event itself because we did talk about it in some detail uh, and all he would talk about was how he saw this articulated truck coming towards him Uh, and then when the articulated truck had gone he got out of the cab and he was a big lad Uh, it's probably about 18 stone and built like a brick outhouse um and he said i ran towards this um this other bloke behind in this car, this thoroughly mashed up car in the back of his van. Um, and he said, I was going to pull him out out of the, um, the cab and give him a right seeing to. And he said, I realized I was dragging my leg a bit, but it didn't bother me. Um, and then there was this voice from this woman at the side of the motorway saying, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And um, he, he kind of paused. And um, the, the point of this story is that, first of all, he wasn't interested in the rather humorous bit of the voice coming out of the dash. Yeah. And eventually we, we had a really good chuckle over that because he kind of got his head round that. And suddenly the the miss, being missed by the articulated lorry became much less significant because of the humour of that. But the, the reality of it was that he was dragging um, a, a shattered kneecap uh, and he was going to give this bloke a scene to anyway. And the woman on the side of the road was an off-duty police officer who, who got through to him. Um, simply by saying i wouldn't do that and then there was a whole source of humor around that because he went and sat on the side of the motorway with her and she basically calmed him down and then they got the ambulance for him and all the rest of it Um, and he began to see how he'd actually been in control of the whole process and how much he'd been in control of himself whereas when he first came in he felt that he had absolutely no control over the situation at all
0: Uh, so he basically started to to even see the story differently and see his agency even within that
1: oh absolutely yeah. and he as ben Furman would say he, he began to see the humor in it mm. you know and, and at that point at prior when he first came in he was a real mess because he would just thought that he'd failed in every aspect of his life uh, because of the the way he'd handled this accident and then he began to realize that actually he'd done a pretty damn good job yeah and and, and I didn't sort of point these things out to him. They, he became aware of them simply because we started to, to look at the event itself and he began to notice other things.
0: Well, a final couple of questions then, because I know you have to go soon. Um, but if someone's listened to this and they've had something traumatic and maybe they're suffering the effects of trauma, what, what questions might you suggest that they ask of themselves to start dipping their toe into solution-focused practice for themselves?
1: How did you survive it? How did you manage to get through that? That's those are my two questions.
0: Okay, brilliant. And well, if a practitioner is interested in working with trauma and and haven't done before, what would your advice be to them?
1: I think it's one of the most rewarding aspects of of all the work that I do um, is is just seeing somebody who who comes in who's who's struggling with an aspect of their life because they've suffered something unpleasant. And often potentially life-threatening and you see the agency grow as you have these solution focused conversations with them and and you see them begin to to work on themselves and begin to understand themselves in the context of that event and and watching them go out for the last time and actually knowing that they're going to get on with their lives again is just absolutely incredible is it is the most rewarding feeling
0: that's brilliant. Thanks very much for your time. How, how can people find you um, after they've heard this and they might want to contact you? How can people find you and your work? Um, there's our website,
1: which is www.psychological-therapies-unit.co.uk. There's all the contact details on there. Um, there's, um, they, they can email me. That's just uh, steve at psychological-therapies-unit.co.uk. Um, they can ring us, we're in Liverpool Um, uh, telephone numbers 0151 706 8163 Um, they can send me a carrier pigeon uh, (laughs) any way they like Um, I'm if if you put my name in on the web it will come up with all sorts of different ways of contacting me Uh, there's also a huge blog out there that I wrote right which is um, steveflat.wordpress.com. if anybody's interested in reading my scribblings
0: OK, that's brilliant. So thanks very much again for your time, Stephen, for talking to us about trauma.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: You've been listening to the Solution Focus podcast, the official podcast of the UK Association for Solution Focus Practice. To find out more about us, visit UKASFP.org. That's UKASFP.org. our best hope is that you'll spread the word by sharing the podcast with your friends and on your social media. Even better would be to rate us on Apple Podcasts so it's easy for others to discover the show. And if you'd like to contact us or even be a guest on the show yourself, just write to podcast at ukasfp.org. That's podcast at ukasfp.org. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.